This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Happy Easter to you as we are just about through the octave of Easter. These first eight days mark a more solemn celebration of uh, the, the season of Easter. But then we get to continue our celebration and our feast for the full 50 days of this Easter season. Uh, you'll notice at Mass a whole lot of Alleluias. We have had the Alleluias buried for the whole of Lent. Uh, they, they, and, unless, as, as has happened on occasion, unless your cantor slipped up, uh, you haven't had the Alleluias this whole season. In fact, um, we try to do that in my house as well. Uh, we um, so we were listening to because because this is how we roll around here. We had the Gregorian chant on during dinner, uh, but we did the Pandora station, which is not liturgically um, collated, as you could imagine. Uh, it is it is not something that has been well curated. Uh, and so, lo and behold, uh, up comes a chant that is full of hallelujahs, and the children all just kind of catch their breath and start shouting over it so they can't hear the, the Ali no no, they say, uh, as they run around trying to find the remote control to change it to the next song. Uh, so, yeah, we've been without the hallelujahs for a while, and we are making up for lost time in the liturgy, uh, adding it in every possible place. Um, because this is our season of celebration, right? This is the time where we amp it up and uh, and celebrate a little bit more rigorously. Um, and this is, I think, important for us specifically as many people are still struggling with the effects of the pandemic, of lockdown, of of uh, loss of the kinds of relationship uh, building that they had in the past, loss of the kinds of activities they were able to do in the past, it still can feel a little bit like Lent. And I, I say this because you probably heard the joke in your parish as well as I did in mine. Everywhere you look, there uh, social media, in homilies, in in conversation— you hear people say, well, here we are, we're at Lent again, and it feels like Lent didn't end from last year, right? That we've been in one long Lent, people joke, uh, half serious, maybe a little bit more than half serious. And the truth of the matter is, is we are still uh, culturally not out of the woods in terms of returning back to normal. And so the church has given us in her wisdom this season to say, you know what, whatever it is you're going through, this is the season to rejoice. Let's take some time and rejoice in the fact that all of these temporal problems that we're facing, all of the difficulty that we are encountering in our life right now, this is all temporary. It's all temporal. And there is an eternal perspective that we look to with rejoicing because of what happened at Easter. And there's a foreshadowing of this in the book of Nehemiah. Where, um, where all the people, they've rebuilt the walls, they have come back from exile, they're back in Jerusalem, and Ezra comes and he stands up and he reads the law. Uh, and, and the people heard these words of the law that had been taken from them, that they hadn't had for years and years. Uh, and they began to weep at, at 
one, at the recognition of all that had been lost to them, and, and two, recognizing that they hadn't really lived up to that law that God had given to them. Uh, and, and he says to them, uh, he says, today is holy to the Lord your God. Do not lament, do not weep. Um, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. He continued, go eat rich foods and drink sweet drinks and allot portions to those who had nothing prepared. For today is holy to our Lord. Do not be saddened this day for rejoicing in the Lord is your strength. And I think that for us in this season of life, that's important for us to hear as well. Rejoicing in the Lord is our strength. When everything around us seems to be going just absolutely wrong, that we take a moment to forget about everything else. And in obedience, in in uh, participation with the worship of the church, with the liturgy of the church, we turn our, our focus to a time of rejoicing, these 50 days of the season of Easter. And we say, Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, hallelujah, hallelujah, Right? We're going to throw out those hallelujahs. We are going to rejoice with all of our might. Um, we have been, we've had more sweets in this one week than probably we have the rest of the year combined, uh, because this is a season of rejoicing. We want the kids to know, hey, this is different than normal. Um, this is the Easter season, and all sweetness comes from this time. It's like we say at the benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, he has given them bread from heaven, having within it all sweetness. And so uh, so what does your Easter celebration look like? Maybe you've gotten a late start in getting past Easter Day because things are heavy these days. But starting now, what do you expect your Easter celebration to look like? Uh, what are some of the things that, that you do in your home? I want to hear about them. Uh, come over to social media and share it with me. Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle is at Outside the Walls. And what I want to do in this as we begin to share with one another what our Easter celebration looks like um, is to encourage one another. Maybe you've got a practice that will enrich the life of someone else. And maybe by going and reading other comments, there you're going to find something that will uplift your spirits and help you uh, to find your strength because rejoicing in the Lord is our strength. So again, come over and share that over on Facebook, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. Um, all of this also reminds me, you've probably heard the quote, we are an Easter people and hallelujah is our song. And I think that this may be a, a hymn. I'm not exactly sure of where it originates, but it was it was spoken by St. Pope John Paul II at an Angelus address that he gave in Adelaide, Australia on Sunday, 30th of November in 1986. And in that, he speaks to this that we're talking about. He says, faith is our source of joy. We believe in a God who created us so that we might enjoy human happiness in some measure on earth, in its fullness in heaven. We are meant to have our human joys, the joy of living, the joy of love and friendship, the joy of work well done. We who are Christians have a further cause for joy. Like Jesus, we know that we are loved by God our Father. This love transforms our lives and fills us with joy. It makes us see that Jesus did not come to lay burdens upon us. 
He came to teach us what it means to be fully happy and fully human. Therefore, we discover joy when we discover truth, the truth about God our Father, the truth about Jesus our Savior, the truth about the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts. We do not pretend, he says, that life is all beauty. We are aware of darkness and sin, of poverty and pain. But we know that Jesus has conquered sin and passed through his own pain to the glory of the resurrection. And we live in the light of his paschal mystery, the mystery of his death and resurrection. We are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. We are not looking for a shallow joy, but rather a joy that comes from faith, that grows through unselfish love, that respects the fundamental duty of love of neighbor, without which it would be unbecoming to speak of joy. We realize that joy is demanding. It demands unselfishness. It demands a readiness to say with Mary, be it done to me according to thy word. And so we hear the words of our Holy Father, St. Pope, Pope St. St. Pope, I never get that right, St. Pope John Paul II. And um, he's calling us, and he called the people of Adelaide, Australia at that time to, to celebrate in the midst of the darkness that's around us, not in some kind of foolhardy pretension, but rather because we know that the one whom we celebrate has conquered sin and death and hell. And he has redeemed us and brought us back into relationship with God the Father so that we can look at all of these distractions and all of these difficulties and all of these really large looming problems and say with confidence, Alleluia, Alleluia, Christ is risen. Something else that I think about in the midst of this Easter season is I have a sense of solidarity with all of those who have come into the church this year came in at Easter Vigil. Uh, I, my prayers are always with those who have gone through the RCIA process or who have uh, gone through some other process in order to be confirmed this year. Um, this for us, my wife and I, uh, marks 10 years uh, of our being in full communion with the Catholic Church. Uh, for me, it was about a 10-year journey. She had about a five-year journey. Uh, and then through the wonderful priests in the Diocese of Tulsa, we were brought into the church um, three weeks after Easter Vigil because of some specific logistics uh, in in our life. Uh, and so for me, as we hit Easter again every year, it just it brings this little uh, this nostalgic warmth because I have to tell you, there has not been a single day that has gone by that I have regretted the decision to become Catholic. Uh, the only thing that I've ever regretted is how long it took. And yet, uh, God puts us all on our own path. Uh, and so um, he was faithful to bring us to the place where we were finally able to enter into the church. Uh, and this, the circumstances lined up just for us to be able to finally see it and to, to make that move. But I pray for all of those who are brand new into the faith and one of the things that I, I wish that I had was someone to answer those, uh, those questions that, that no one tells you in RCIA. No one tells you uh, all of the, the nuances and the popular piety and the everything else. 
there's a great community over at the Coming Home Network of, of people who are on the journey or have been recently through that journey that can help answer some difficult questions. But even then, it can be a little hard to figure it all out. Uh, so today we're going to talk about uh, a specific thing that I think will be of interest uh, to everyone, but in particular to those who have come into the church recently. Uh, what do you do after communion? What do you do after the recessional has played? Well, we're going to address that in today's conversation. We're talking today with Father Edward Looney. He was ordained a priest in the Diocese of Green Bay back in June of 2015 and is an internationally recognized Marian theologian, writer, speaker, and radio personality. We had him on the show before to talk about his Rosary Litany, which is just a fantastic prayer resource. Uh, I encourage you to go and look at that episode. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, scroll down to the right-hand column until you see his name and click on it. There you'll find this episode as well as that other one on the Rosary Litany. But today, uh, here we are, just past Easter. I'm actually talking with uh, with Father the day after Easter because he just has extra energy. Uh, and so I, I, one of these things that, that I think of when I think of Easter is my own coming into the church. I came into the church uh, about 10 years ago now, and one of the questions I had shortly after actually becoming Catholic um, is I noticed after Mass was over, uh, you know, typically in, in the Protestant church that I'd come in, you have that last hymn, and there's the recessional, and then everybody gets up and kind of walks out and goes to Sunday school or whatever else it is. Uh, but here I was uh, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the recession happened, the recessional happened, the music went on, uh, it was over, and then people kneeled down again. And I'm like, wait a second, this is not in my playbook. I do not understand what's happening here. And uh, and I, I remember asking to myself, is there like some set of prayers, some something that I'm missing that I'm supposed to know about? Uh, well, let me tell you, if you're like me and you're trying to figure that out and you want to have some kind of, of aid to help you through these after communion prayers, I've got the book for you. Meditations After Holy Communion is available right now on Sophia Institute Press and Father Looney, you're the one who penned it. Talk to us a little bit about your interest in this topic, uh, and we'll get into some of these meditations here in a moment. Yeah, so actually, it's great to be with you. And I remarked before the show to you that back when we did that Rosary Litany interview was the first time I ever had to download Zoom for something. And that was, you know, a year or so before the pandemic. And yeah. so now Zoom is the new way of life. And I'm on Zoom several hours each week. So you were preparing me for something I didn't even know. <laughs> uh, anyways, but it's great to be with you and to talk about meditations after Holy Communion. And uh, yeah, you mentioned my kind of my bio that I'm a it says internationally recognized Marian theologian. I think it's because I gave a paper at a conference in Portugal. And so <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I am this Marian theologian. That's kind of my specialty in theology. I've focused a lot of my study on the Blessed Mother. And actually, comically, this is the first book I've written that wasn't about Mary explicitly, but it was born out of a Marian research project, actually. So uh, as a member of the Mariological Society of America, I'm on their administrative council, I'm their vice president, I'm their webmaster, I do all this internet work for the Mariological Society um, to have their members stay in touch and whatnot. So 
with the Mariological Society, every year we have a little conference, you know, in May, and the scholars come together. They proposed paper topics a long time ago. They got approved or denied. And if you got approved, then you write, then you get blessed. You get to write a 20-page paper or a 30-page <laughs> paper that you're going to give at the conference. And the one year it was Mary and the Sacraments of Initiation. So think about baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation. And I said, you know what? I want to write about Mary and the Eucharist. And I thought, you know, what I want to do is I want to write on the prayers after communion. So, you know, for people that go, for example, to the extraordinary form of the mass, they have hand missiles, for example. Mm -hmm. And at the back of the hand missile are prayers before mass and after mass. And some of these prayers come from the saints, like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Anselm and St. Bonaventure, St. Ambrose. Uh, there's the famous prayer of the anima Christi, the prayer before a crucifix. All of these are traditional prayers that someone could say, scripted prayers from a from a prayer book that you could pray after you receive Holy Communion after uh, after Mass as well. And I thought, oh, it would be really neat for me to go through, catalog all the different references to Mary. Like, how do they talk about Mary? And then kind of to go into the theology behind that line in the prayer. That was my thought. But uh, I went to the academic library that I always use for my research, went down, pulled off these missiles, took pictures. I'm sure my 20,000 pictures on my phone, they're still there. <laughs> and uh, so I, I took pictures of all of them so that I could do the writing and the research. But then I happened across a book and it was called Christ in Me. And I said, oh, this is an interesting book. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, I'm like, well, Mary had Christ in her. Maybe this is a book about Mary and the Eucharist. And so I open up the book and it says, Christ in me, meditations after Holy Communion. Father Daniel A. Lord. I'm like, oh, I've never heard of this guy. Flip the next page, table of contents. There's about 60 different meditations he had written and uh, 12 of them focused on the Blessed Mother and like receiving communion in union with Mary, in imitation of Mary, thinking about Mary's last Holy Communion, and so forth. And so I thought, wow, this is a nice topic. Maybe I should just look at this guy, what he says, and kind of the theological premises behind each one of these meditations. And that's what I ended up doing. I presented the paper. It'll be published. They're about three years behind in publishing the journal. So uh, that was that was kind of my introduction to this style of meditations after Holy Communion. And we talked about a rosary litany a few years ago now. Mm -hmm. And my scholar friend from England, who was at the conference that year, said to me, you know, Father Edward, you renewed St. Louis de Montfort's uh, devotion of inserting a phrase after the name of Jesus in the Hail Mary prayer. You know, why don't you consider doing something like Father Lord and introducing people to how to pray and how to meditate after Holy Communion? And so that was the kind of the seed of the book idea and uh, sat on it for a long time. And then we had a pandemic and lockdown <laughs> and all this stuff. And I said, you know, we're going to be coming out of a pandemic. It would be really good for us to have a Eucharistic book to kind of renew devotion after people hadn't been at mass. And so I started writing meditations after Holy Communion. And now you hold it in your hands. You know, uh, you bring up um, the, the pandemic and you, you bring up, uh, in the book a little bit, catechesis and the fact that um, that our understanding as Catholics 
of of the real presence in the Eucharist is statistically uh, not that great. Uh, recently, there was also, uh, I think it was either Gallup or a Pew study that said for the first time in maybe forever, uh, the n- number of people who who claim to belong to a religious organization and, and go to some kind of service every week is now below 50%. So less than 50% of people in the U.S. are members or would claim membership in a church. And so here we are coming out of this pandemic, and I think that there's this— um, this drive for kind of a scholastic education model of, well, we just need to teach people better. Uh, and, and I'm becoming more and more convinced that the way that we, that we grow our understanding is by doing, is by going and, and spending time in adoration and by spending extra time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. And, and to have this kind of, uh, this means of sitting and gazing at Jesus in the Eucharist and having him gaze back at us. There's that, that anecdote about the, the man who said, someone asked him, what do you do when you go in to, to adoration? He says, well, I, I go in and I look at him and, and he looks at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really excited about this book because I, a father of, of a whole pew, right? We have the whole pew because there's so many of us. This gives me a way to say, hey, we're going to read a little bit about this. I want you to think about this during Mass, and then afterwards we're going to sit and we're going to ask ourselves these questions, and we're going to pray here before we go home, before we have all the hustle and bustle and arguments about who's buckling who and and whatnot. Um, I, I love this not only for personal devotion, but really as kind of a framework for families to foster that devotion uh, in in their children and, and to strengthen that devotion in mom and dad. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that's actually, you know, that was something I didn't necessarily think about until after I started thinking about, well, how are people going to use this book? And I thought, and uh, you know, the each day or each Sunday that I have the meditation for, it has kind of like a little story that I begin with. And that's really just to make kind of the topic relatable to the people. And then I have what are called the points to ponder. So you think about these different questions. And when I say think, I mean, like, I want you to about them. I want you to talk to Jesus about them. Like, if you're thinking about what makes you sad or what your sorrows are, well, talk to Jesus about your sorrows. So that was another aim of the book was to teach people how to talk to the Lord, because we should do that after we receive Holy Communion. And then there's a little prayer at the very end. So in my mind, I kind of started envisioning that if families have a drive to mass. Let's say you have a 10 minute drive there and back. Well, maybe you read the kind of the introduction to the Sunday that I've written, the topic that I've given. And then maybe on the way home, you talk about those questions together as a family, and then you conclude with that kind of concluding prayer. So that was one of the visions that I had for the book and you kind of hit at it right there. So I'm glad you picked up on that. You know, and I think part of this is that it becomes very easy for us to to just go to mass and we're we're used to it and we we just kind of respond right someone uh someone says the lord be with you and we know I mean just kind of reflexively we say and with your spirit uh and there's just it becomes a a call and response that really does not take our intention and our thought and our our focus and as a parent, in some ways, that's good because focus is divided among uh, trying to get everybody else to focus. Uh, but on the other hand, this this 
kind of responsiveness, reflexiveness can take us out of the fact of what's really happening. You you mentioned in the book that doing several masses a day can lead towards this reflexiveness as well, rather than a f- reflectiveness. And so yeah. let's talk about what are some things that you see, uh, both as a priest and as the faithful, as someone who's coming and approaching the Eucharist, what are some things that you have pinpointed can help in moving from reflexiveness to reflectiveness? Yeah, so that, that's a good point there, that lots of people kind of just go through the motions. People have been going to Mass, hopefully every Sunday, for the last X number of years of their life. And it's a routine, it's a habit. And hopefully if you miss it, you notice it, you realize it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's become ingrained in us. And in our Catholic tradition, we have this ritual where it's we do the same things every week. You know, I'm friends with a uh, kind of a very prominent Protestant minister, and I, I watch some of his stuff online just because I, I appreciate his insights and things. And um, but every time it's a little different, you know, mm-hmm. um, their 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 experience. And so for us, it's always you know you know what you're going to get, and that's what we that that's what you're talking about. Like because we can already anticipate it. Well, then our mind begins to wander. Mm-hmm. You. People joked, we just renovated our church, and people often joke that they would count the number of cracks on the wall if they got bored, for example. <laughs> so how do you go from being bored, or how do you go from just not really appreciating to to doing to appreciating it? I think, you know, first of all, you just need to know what it is that you we're celebrating. So if you don't understand the the greatness of the mass, well, go read a book or watch a video series. Go read Scott Hahn's The Lamb's Supper. Mm-hmm. Go uh, re- go watch Bishop Barron's The Series on the Mass. You know, there are lots of different resources out there for us to understand and appreciate every little action that we do at Mass. And I think that begins to move us as we pay attention, for example, to the words. Like, listen to the prayer of the preface before the Holy Holy. Think about some of those lines that that's probably one of the great gifts uh, that we could do in order to better appreciate and to reflect more at mass is to allow the mass to inform our reflection. Yeah. And, and, you know, we even have Sundays that we have named based on the, the entrance antiphon or the collect. Uh, You know, we, uh, we just went through Holy Thursday. Um, In my tradition growing up before I was Catholic, we would call it Monday Thursday. So even the Protestants are calling it, Monday, Thursday, based on the entrance antiphon in the Catholic Church, right? A new command I give to you to love one another. And so um, I, I love this idea of picking out something from the Mass, the preface or the antiphons, to hone our, our attention so that we can see the beauty of what God offers us that we see at Easter and that we see every Sunday as we come and we encounter his presence in the Eucharist. We're talking today with Father Edward Looney, who is the author of a new book, Meditations After Holy Communion, available right now on Sophia Institute Press. There's much more to this conversation right after this, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Putnam. And here we are coming up on Divine Mercy Sunday tomorrow uh, as we continue our Easter celebration. We get to feast for 50 days. Yes, we had to fast for 40, but guess what? Our celebration is greater than uh, all of the preparations that went into it. We're talking today with Father Edward Looney, who has uh, the author of a brand new book, Meditations After Holy Communion, available on Sophia Institute Press. Father Looney, it's great to have you here today. Yes, always a great joy to talk about the Eucharist. And uh, we're coming up on Divine Mercy Sunday as well. And um, when we talk about the Eucharist, I really think that uh, when we talk, when we think about the kind of the disbelief of people, right? Mm-hmm. So we referenced earlier the uh, kind of the crisis of faith that 30% maybe believe in the true presence according to the CARA statistics. You know, that survey you mentioned, under 50% now go to church on a regular basis or have a church they call home. So, but I think for any ordinary Catholic, sometimes we can have a bit of doubt in our life. And I think that the story of divine mercy, not only with Faustina, but then with the parallel gospel for the second Sunday of Easter, you know, doubting Thomas is one of those things where it helps us to realize, well, maybe if I have doubts, what if I doubt that Jesus is present in the Eucharist? What if I don't understand that? Well, what do I do? And I think that phrase that St. Faustina was taught by Jesus, Jesus, I trust in you, is, is very fitting, very appropriate. So like we can pray, Jesus, I trust in you. Help me to believe in the real presence. Jesus, I trust you are here with me in the blessed sacrament. And so you know, we have these doubts, maybe even about God's mercy, about God's forgiveness. Well, Jesus, I trust in you that you have forgiven me through the sacrament of reconciliation. These are little prayers that kind of are given to us through these private revelations that really can be transformative in our uh, daily prayer. You know, I look at the story, I, Thomas is one of my, uh, my. he's not, to, he, well, probably is one of my patrons. Uh, I've not ever made it official, but I love St. Thomas and I love the story of of him doubting because the uh, because of where it ends right um it ends with him acknowledging his doubts and i think so often we we push our doubts down and we don't we don't even look at them for fear of what it might be but he goes right out and he lays his doubts out and he puts it in front of others and then what does christ do does christ treat him in some way harshly no he comes and he actually gives him the proof for the doubts that he has and he says do you don't don't be doubting, but believe. Blessed are you, uh, you you rather he says you believe because you have seen. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So there is this blessing for us uh, who have the gift of faith, who who take Christ at His word, but Christ doesn't then come and somehow dismiss the rest of us who experience doubts. He comes and he says, "See, see my hands and see my feet, and see my side." And Thomas doesn't even actually go ahead, according to Scripture, and put the hand in to the wounds. He sees Christ offering everything he's asked for, and he then goes a step beyond the rest of the apostles. He says, my Lord, which they have said, and my God, right? So he now he comes and he acknowledges the divinity. And I think that there is something for us there to say, you know, my doubts aren't the end. Um 
I can offer those doubts up. I can ask God for him to come and confirm me and to give me some, uh, some comfort and some direction in this. Um, but that the doubts aren't taboo in themselves and they can actually lead us to greater faith just as they did for St. Thomas. Yeah, I've been mulling over St. Thomas and, and the gospel for next week and already kind of anticipating what is it that I want to preach on. I also had to write a column for, for one of these Catholic newspapers on, on the readings for this upcoming weekend. And, you know, whatever I wrote there, I know isn't going to be my homily probably. But when I think about Jesus, Jesus knows everything. Mm. Like, just realize that at the beginning of Holy Week, in our readings, it says, like, Jesus already knowing all that was to happen. So he knows the thoughts of people before they speak them, and so he addresses them. So I think that the story of Thomas is one, as as I've been reflecting on it, it's all according to the divine plan. Like, God, Jesus, knows that this was going to happen. Jesus Jesus could have appeared in the upper room when Thomas was there. Right. He could have waited, but he chose that moment when wasn't when one wasn't there so that maybe there was a lesson for us to t- take away from that. And and so what is that lesson? What is it about the wounds of Jesus? Maybe that's what he wants to teach us about. So, um yeah, it's a very powerful story as you mentioned for sure. One that we'll be praying about and thinking about here this upcoming Sunday. Well, and moving on to an, another St. Thomas, uh, the story just sticks with me at the end of St. Thomas Aquinas' life, where he's written the Summa Theologia, he's he's written all of these amazing treatises on the faith, and then he has this mystical experience with Christ in the Eucharist and says, everything that I've written is useless. It's all straw. And so as much as as we think, yeah, I, I get this. I understand the real presence. I know that Jesus is with us in the Mass. I, I, I believe this. I'm one of the 30%, right? Even then, I think that there is something about our participation in the Mass and our communion with God uh, one-to-one in the Mass that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. And, and taking time to meditate on it and being present in the Mass— makes a difference, uh, even for us who are formed in the faith. Yeah, you mentioned, what did Thomas Aquinas do when he thought everything was all for naught and all was straw? What did he do? He went before the Blessed Sacrament. He prayed there. And so in our own life, you know, when we come to church every Sunday, well, kneel down, pray to God, pray to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. If you have doubts that Jesus is present in the Holy Eucharist, Find an adoration chapel and go and sit there five, ten minutes each week. Or go to a church that's open. Sit in the church and say, God, I want you to reveal yourself to me. And I think that's one of the things I do bring out in meditations after Holy Communion is that sometimes we have to be bold with God in our prayer. There's one one Sunday where that's really the point. What is it that I can do to really be bold in my prayer requests? You know, Jesus wants us to name these things. I, in, in that reflection, I remember, I relate a story. Early days of priesthood, maybe first few months. And it's just kind of like it hits you one day. You're like, is this really real? Like, when I take bread and wine, does it really become the body and blood of Christ? Are sins really forgiven? Is this really real? And so I prayed that day and I said, God, show me that this is real. And uh, the next day, there was a person that, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. I wasn't supposed to be there. 
Uh, and, and I was there for that person in that moment. And so that, and for me, I believed it was a point of conversion for that person. So I believed then, well, that's the powerful sign. This was real. Another parish when I was serving there, I hadn't heard confessions in this one. I heard, I sat there, uh, but I didn't have any penitents come to me for months. And so I, I said one day in prayer in the morning, Saturday morning, I said, God, please send me some penitence today. And sure enough, two people came to confession. So we have to be bold in our prayer. And there's no more boldness or time to be bold when we are praying after Holy Communion, when we're praying before the Blessed Sacrament. We can really give everything, hand everything over to the Lord uh, in those precise moments. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I think of these bold prayers um, as opportunities for us to see and recognize God, right? I mean, that's really what we're doing when we ask bold things of God. I think it's um, St. Catherine of Siena, but you might correct me if I'm wrong, who says that we pay God favors by asking bold things of him, right? Uh, and so there's this this truth that, that God is present to us, and God wants us to know he is present to us. And by asking him these bold things, show us, Lord, your presence. Show us your grace. Help us to understand more what you're doing here in the Mass. Help us to see your presence. Um, We're asking of him the things that he already wants to give us. We're asking uh, for really the fruits of communion, for us to understand the depth that we've just now uh, encountered. I always go back to the story of Bartimaeus. I think it's the most marvelous accounts of Jesus's healings in the gospel, one of them at least. It's my favorite. And because it really hit me in a profound way. I was struggling with intercessory prayer. I was always inundated with prayer requests. And like intellectually, I became one of those people that said, well, God already knows. So like, why do I need to pray in that way? You know, like, God know if God is omniscient, if he's all-knowing, if he's unmovable, if God doesn't change, well, then why is it that I should pray in this way? And so um, I struggled with that. And then one Sunday, it was the gospel of Bartimaeus at Mass. And Jesus, again, knows everything about everybody, goes to Bartimaeus, who's crying out on the side of the road, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have pity on me. He goes to Bartimaeus and he says, uh, what do you want me to do for you? It's like, Jesus, you're standing before a blind man. What do you think he wants you to do for him? (laughs) He wants to see. But yet Jesus asks Bartimaeus because he wants him to ask for it. And so that's why we pray our intercessory prayer. It's why we ask God for the graces that he so much wants to give us, but he really wants us to realize that we're dependent upon him for everything that we have. And that's the story of Bartimaeus. That's the story of our prayer asking the Lord for many different graces, especially after we receive Holy Communion. Well, and if we were to receive the things before we asked for them, we wouldn't really be able to attribute it to the presence and and the intervention of God. It's something in asking God to do something for us, and then, oh, by the way, here it is, that it's like, oh, now I can credit God with this intervention. And, and And it moves us to thanksgiving. And it moves us into a deeper intimacy with the person. I mean, I just look at the story of, uh, we just 
went through Easter Vigil. We had the salvation history recounted to us in the readings. Um, and you look at the children of Israel going through the desert, and you look at the, the whole relationship he had with Israel over the whole Old Testament, the promise he keeps returning to is um, they will be my people and I will be their God and I will dwell among them, right? This is this is the goal that all of salvation history is moving towards, for us to be the people of God, for God to be our God, and for his presence to dwell among us. And this is what, of course, we have in the Eucharist. Definitely. And the Lord is always there. He always wants to listen. He waits for us. Uh, but in the tabernacle, he waits for us in the monstrance. He waits for us at mass so that we can receive him. The saints say that after we receive Holy Communion, it's one of the most powerful moments of conversation with God because literally we are in union with God. We have communion with him. And to be able to recognize him in that moment, you, just as the the two, uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus who recognized him in the breaking of the bread and said, it is the Lord, Dominus Est, right? Um, how do we, through our meditation, or how have you found in your meditation that your recognition of the presence of God has increased? Yeah, so it comes over time, I think, as you continue to do these religious things, that that you begin to notice how God is active and God is at work. You know, maybe for the person who doesn't have that religious sensibility, they might not be aware of that, aware of that. But then once you begin to grow, uh, once you have that acumen, uh, you'll be able to notice those things. And, you know, I, I go back to after the pandemic or during, we're still in it, I guess. So, um, but when we were able to go back to mass, there were so many people uh, that were, uh, that said, like, it was such a joy to be able to receive Holy Communion today. And, um, you know, I, I had people come to mass, like I would invite two or three different people, you know, for a, a virtual mass. And, and they felt very blessed to have that opportunity to receive communion when so many weren't. Mm-hmm. So last, uh, last question for you today, as you've gone through and you've put together these meditations for the whole liturgical year, uh, for people, just real short, about two pages per, um, for people to spend time before Mass in contemplation and then after Mass in reflection and in meditation. Um, as you have put these together, what did you learn that you didn't expect? What what day of the year really stood out to you as a, a, a profound experience for you as you put it together? Yeah, interesting question. Um, you know, I always say one of the things I always learn when I write books, whether it's a Lenten journey with Mother Mary or meditations after Holy Communion, a heart like Mary's, whatever, is that my takeaway always at the very end is that I still need this. So just because I wrote a book, Meditations After Holy Communion, doesn't mean I'm the expert on it. And it means that I need to do this more in my life. And so you realize that you need that time. You need those moments. And when I set out to write the book, there wasn't a, a schema in my head. I knew, you know, Advent, let's focus on waiting. Lent, let's focus on passion, death, resurrection of Jesus, Easter kind of. And then you put little reflections in there throughout the year, like, okay, I think this would be the time when there would be holy first Holy Communion. So maybe we think about our own first Holy Communion. 
I think one of my favorite ones probably is that one, the first Holy Communion, because it recalls your memory. And so you begin to pray with past experiences of your life. And that could then, not only do you do that after Holy Communion, but you can do that anytime. Mm-hmm. Some grace that you have received while well, you pray with that memory. So for me, my first Holy Communion, I, was, I had the chicken pox. And so I did <laughs> not make my first Holy Communion with the class. I made my first Holy Communion with other people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with, with, by myself, I mean. Um, right. uh, and, and so I had that recollection. I remember the priest. And so you just remember those moments. And then they give, you, you're, you give thanks to God for them. But also then, um, how do you pray with your memory? I think that's a, a beautiful sense of maybe where this can take us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. We've been talking today with Father Edward Looney, priest of the Diocese of Green Bay. He's written a new book, Meditations After Holy Communion, available right now on Sophia Institute Press. Father Looney, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, joy and a pleasure to be with you and your listeners and to share our love and deepening our appreciation for the Eucharist. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Edward Looney or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And while you're there, uh, there's always an extra segment. Uh, This week, there's about 12 minutes of extra conversation with Father Looney that's available to all of those who keep us on the air, our Patreon support community. Learn more by going to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking the Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum uses technology to help you grow in the light of Scripture and tradition. Learn more by going to Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of John. This is actually going to be from our, uh, from our Gospel tomorrow at Mass. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews— Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, His disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Bring your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. That reading comes from the Gospel of John, and I love this passage um, for for any number of reasons. We talked about this earlier uh, with, with Father Looney, that um, that he wasn't there in that room for some undisclosed reason, but Jesus knew that he wasn't there, right? He he chose to come at that time and perhaps providentially had Thomas not there so that we could receive this blessing. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. And Thomas gets a bad rap because Thomas is only asking to receive what the other apostles, the other disciples have already received. Jesus already came to them, and he came on the first day of the week. This is just a little side point. Um, We in the Catholic Church, we worship on Sunday because it's the day of resurrection, but it's also the day of visitation. Here we see that, that Jesus comes and he appears. When it's mentioned what day he appears, it's the first day of the week. He appears on his resurrection day to to multiple people. And then a week later, on the first day of the week, he comes and appears again. And we have this repeat a few times to the point that by the time we get to the book of Acts, the first day of the week, Sunday, is called the Lord's Day uh, because this is the day that the Lord came and and revealed himself and the, the day that he came multiple times uh, after his resurrection, before his ascension, uh, to be with his disciples, to be with his people. So this week, if you hear homilies or, or anecdotes about doubting Thomas, pray that we might have with Thomas the, the faith and the clarity of, of conviction to be able to say with him, my Lord and my God, when we come face to face with Christ in the Eucharist. Our reading from church history today comes from uh, the the catechesis of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take, drink, this is my blood. Since Christ himself has declared the bread to be his body, who can have any further doubt? Since he himself has said quite categorically, this is my blood, who would dare question it and say that it is not his blood? Therefore, it is with complete assurance that we receive the bread and the wine as the body and blood of Christ. His body is given to us under the symbol of bread, His blood is given to us under the symbol of wine in order to make us, by receiving them, one body and blood with him. Having his body and blood in our members, we become bearers of Christ and sharers, as St. Peter says, in the divine nature. Once, when speaking to the Jews, Christ said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no life in you. This horrified them, and they left him. Not understanding his words in a spiritual way, they thought the Savior wished them to practice cannibalism. Under the Old Covenant, there was showbread, but it came to an end with the old dispensation to which it belonged. 
under the new covenant, there is bread from heaven and the cup of salvation. These sanctify both soul and body, the bread being adapted to the sanctification of the body, the word to the sanctification of the soul. Do not then regard the Eucharistic elements as ordinary bread and wine. They are, in fact, the body and blood of the Lord as he himself has declared. Whatever your senses may tell you, be strong in faith. You have been taught and you are firmly convinced that what looks and tastes like bread and wine is not bread and wine, but the body and blood of Christ. You know how also David referred to this long ago when he sang, Bread gives strength to man's heart and makes his face shine with the oil of gladness. Strengthen your heart then by receiving this bread as spiritual bread. And bring joy to the face of your soul. May purity of conscience remove the veil from the face of your soul so that by contemplating the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, you may be transformed from glory to glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That reading, again, comes from the Catechesis, the Jerusalem Catechesis from St. Cyril of Jerusalem. And these are the the catechetical homilies that were given to those who were uh, were soon uh, to receive the Eucharist. These are the baptismal homilies that they received shortly after their baptism and before their first communion. Here's a question to ponder. Can the God of the universe speak anything and have it not happen? Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Catechism says, Through all the words of sacred Scripture, God speaks only one single word, His one utterance, in whom He expresses Himself completely. That word is the capital W word, Jesus Himself. You recall that one and the same Word of God extends throughout Scripture, that it is one and the same utterance that resounds in the mouths of all the sacred writers, since he who is in the beginning with God has no need of separate syllables, the Catechism says, for he's not subject to time. Here, that one word is the same word that said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the same word that said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. And I've heard, I've heard it said, and I don't know if this is just speculation or what, but that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, so that Lazarus specifically would be the only one to come forth. Otherwise, all of the graves would have been opened. What a thought to contemplate. Here, the Word of God that spoke and worlds were formed now speaks and says, this is my body. And so we approach it with a mystical understanding, not of, uh, of ingredients, but of presence. And so as we come this week, Let's take the time after the communion and contemplate the presence of Christ with us in the Eucharist. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Christopher Robin Webster and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.